2: Over this period, going back to 2008, the supporting infrastructure and supply chains that are needed at the regional level have simply not developed, and that is a fundamental problem given the government's aspirations around net zero.
3: Whereas in 2014, for example, we might have had 10 insulation installers here in the area of Brighton and Hove, now we have none, absolutely none. There's nobody to do the work.
0: Hello, and welcome to Local Zero. You're listening to Matt and Becky, and today we're gonna be talking about how government can best support community energy.
1: Yeah, as our governments reach for solutions to tackle spiraling energy bills, stubborn carbon emissions, and regional inequalities, community-led energy projects might just offer a way forward. But today, unlike in other countries, Community energy in the UK is struggling.
0: We're joined by two of the UK's foremost experts on community energy. The first is Kayla Enty, who is Chief Executive and Founder at Brighton and Hove Energy Services Cooperative. She is joined by Nigel Cornwall, Director at Hydrogen East, Net Zero East and New Anglia Energy.
1: We'll be talking to them about the prospects of community energy in the context of the energy crisis, net zero and a just transition. We'll also ask them what's holding it back and how government could be doing more to help unleash the full potential.
0: And as ever, if you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions over there. And also you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts.
1: So before we get into our discussion today, let's look back over the past couple of weeks. So Matt, how's it been going for you?
0: Well, another busy couple of weeks. This 2022 is unremitting in its excitement, in its levels of stress, but it certainly hasn't hasn't been a slow one. So I've been trying to kind of break the stress, as it were, by doing a bit of rewilding in the back garden, which I've gone full Chris Packham, basically, Becky.
1: Amazing. Amazing. I can just imagine you out there in your garden, uh, you know, getting all the tools out, digging it up, all the rest of it. So so what, is, what new has happened in your garden, Matt?
0: Well... Very exciting. I had my birthday, so of course, because you know this is the, this is full-blooded midlife crisis. I received some bird boxes, but the the crowning glory was a bat box.
1: A bat box.
0: That's how exciting my <laughs> life has got. Yeah, it's it's really quite tragic, but they're up, and believe it or not, I'm looking out at them and I'm seeing all the birds kind of checking them out. So hopefully, yeah, get some. But it's it's nice, and there'll be a pond and stuff. I'm, I'm a happy man having done all that. What about you? What have you been up to?
1: I haven't been up to anything nearly as exciting all of that. I've I've had sick children, sick dog, sprained my ankle again, you know, just the fundamentals of life. I wish I wish I'd gone out in the garden and done a lot more. But it, it's funny you mentioned actually, because I've really been missing a lot of that and particularly with my ankle again, and not being able to walk much. I've been missing being out in nature. So I used to go, go on quite long walks around the local fields, and I'd always hear the birds sort of singing and chirping away, and it always brightened up my morning. So I can just imagine you sitting there and enjoying those sounds and de-stressing immediately.
0: I feel you on the on the sick kids. I've, that's also been uh, I, I didn't I didn't note that there's uh, a moment, but I could have. But the the other thing I've noticed actually looking outside is the dafts are almost up, and we're you know we're we're from. Glasgow everything's slower. And there was an article in in the paper last week, I think it was, that stuff is coming out. You know, is opening plants, flowers, uh, blossoms almost a full month earlier, which is a real problem.
1: Yeah, we've seen the cherry blossoms on some of the local trees, and thinking, I remember this happening in March. I'm sure it was like end of March, and we're only just into February, and we're already starting to see it. So there's a sign of climate change, eh?
0: I know, it's a real problem in terms of pollination. You know, you've got to have have the insects out at the right time. But hey-ho, but this is climate change and this is 1.2 degrees and this is why we do this pod, because this isn't okay. (laughs) This is worrying. But it's okay because we've got some good news stories about climate action and about people doing the right things at the right time. So, Becky, you've got a good one.
1: I do. And it's actually, there's a personal take on it because I've just signed up to participate. So... Octopus Energy have just started a trial where they are paying customers to delay their power usage or turn down the amount of energy they're using in their homes during the dirtiest time. So the times when the electricity system is reliant on the dirtier energy, so fossil fuel based energy, as opposed to renewables. And so I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work. I'm very excited to see because I've never participated in a trial like this before but fundamentally there's going to be uh, notifications that come up that tell you the time of the day when it's predicted to be the dirtiest time of the day because obviously thanks to you know the great data that we're now getting and weather forecasts we can get a bit of insight you know ahead of time as to when when the wind's going to be lagging or when the sun's not going to be shining so To an extent, we can kind of predict a day ahead when those dirty times on the grid are going to be. Yeah. And you can, if you turn, if you participate in the trials, you need to have a smart meter. Obviously, you need to be an Octopus Energy client.
0: And you're lucky because they're not taking any more at the moment.
1: Yeah, I I got in last year, actually, when when I got my electric vehicle, I got in onto that. And so I think this is a really interesting story because in a lot of ways, it's really good because it's starting to open up new ways that people can engage with the energy system and benefit by also sort of delivering benefits to the grid by trying to minimise the amount of dirty energy that that's being used.
0: Yeah, I agreed.
1: However, if I, if I do this, if we're successful, we'll see some financial benefit. But of course, I'm only able to participate in this because... I have a smart meter and I'm with Octopus. And we know and we talked about it time and time again on this pod that oftentimes the people that are just not able to take advantage of, of offers like this are the people that probably need to the most. Yeah. So I think it's great, but I also it also makes me kind of worry about that inclusivity aspect of some of these new tariffs that we're starting to see emerge.
0: Yeah. And it's an interesting point Now, there's a, a point echoed by a chap called Adam Bell uh, on Twitter, who's basically saying it's, you know, age old issue. It's going to be the, the wealthier households that are able to insulate themselves either literally from energy prices or able to do things like you're talking about EV, um, time of use tariffs, or even installing microgen like, like solar on their roofs. So they've got the capital to invest to take power from different sources or different times. So I, I hear you, but good luck with it and let me know how it goes.
1: I will do. I feel like there's gonna be a real mighty um, education component here because, you know, I don't have solar, I don't have a battery, Um, I have, as you do, two young kids. So the washing machine seems to be in an endless cycle of being on. So it'll be interesting to see what we can actually do.
0: It's, it's like the fifth member of our family. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, do let me know how it goes. Um, I, I, yeah, it's, it will collide with the reality and routine of, of family life. My good news story is over the, not the pond, a smaller pond, not the pond, uh, over the Irish Sea. And looking at Ireland, who have really taken some big steps towards retrofitting their homes, or at least have started to lay some of the policy groundwork in reaction to the energy crisis. Grants of uh, more than €25,000, for retrofit whether that's efficiency heat pumps you name it if it's if it's going to reduce bills and improve efficiency it's there um they're looking to their own target's of retrofitting 500,000 homes up to a kind of you know reasonable efficiency standard by 2030 installing 400,000 heat pumps so i mean that's you know pretty much glasgow and and the environs there's lots of other stuff going on here i think the two of the key points to raise much of this is being funded by carbon taxes and there will be one stop shops available there, which will kind of take you, hold your hand right through the retrofit process all the way through to delivery. Uh, So you're not ringing up tradespeople to to do all yourself and coordinate it. So that's the really good news.
1: That piece of it really excites me, the one-stop shop piece of it, because I think even when you can find access to that finance, as difficult as that may be, there are so many barriers in even like knowing what you have to do getting the finance, getting the right people in. So to have all of that in one place, I mean, that's really exciting.
0: And I think associated with this, just kind of reflecting, maybe moving into bad or interesting, weird, I don't know where we are now quite, but linked to this is a story that came out from ECIU, the Environmental and Climate Intelligence Unit, just today, or as we're recording today, saying that in the UK or England specifically, the poorest quality homes, the most fuel poor, and those with the lowest energy efficiency ratings are in the most marginal constituencies. So, looking back at that example of Ireland, you'd be expecting uh, the current um, Conservative government to be falling over themselves and, and indeed the opposition, uh, Labour, making the case for policies to reduce bills and increase efficiency in these marginal seats, mostly in the north of England and the Midlands of, of England,
1: where it's absolutely desperately needed.
0: It is. And I think votes will count on this. And so the interesting, how this is going to play out, are we going to see efficiency climb up the agenda in terms of uh, manifestos? Or if you uh, start to see uh, you know, other initiatives led by Steve Baker and co in terms of Net Zero Watch and reducing, aiming to reduce subsidies for these efforts in order to cut bills, kind of attacking the virtues of net zero. So it's all to play for going forward for the election and whether efficiency is in or is out.
1: I think that energy crisis sort of seems to pearl us in so many different ways, doesn't it, Matt? So looking looking at what you were just talking about, it's, it's are we doing the short-term policy thinking and like, can we reduce immediately or are we thinking more long-term? Because efficiency is a no-brainer like we're never going to get to net zero without efficiency we're never going to reduce our bills and tackle some of the key issues particularly around like fuel poverty and um you know warmth in homes without doing it so to me it seems absolutely nuts to be pulling it off the table but we it wouldn't be the first time we've seen short-term thinking in policy would it
0: are you self-segueing into your bad news story here Becky oh
1: I feel like I might be. It wasn't intentional, but I guess the energy, as I said, the energy crisis seems to kind of tie it all together And. I'm almost a little bit sick of the number of stories I see which ask if this is a result of our net zero policies and and levies to support that kind of net zero agenda. But there's a really lovely piece of analysis that uh, Sky News put out. So Ed Conway from Sky uh, News team. And Matt, you would love this story because I think there are four or five graphs in it. Love a graph. But ultimately, what this is trying to get at is whether the energy crisis that we are currently going through is fundamentally down to our net zero and environmental policies. And it is a far more complex story than we first might think about because we could just look at it from the kind of levies perspective and how much they add on to the bills. But again, that's not really getting at the full story. That's also taking a very short term perspective. But what it comes down to is is a couple of things. One is that there is an increasing demand globally for natural gas. So China's increasing its use of natural gas. The simply having more demand for it means that there is less of it to go around, you know? Supply
0: and demand, prices rising.
1: Exactly, but that is not everything because another big aspect is looking at the extent to which countries around the world have been investing in primary energy production.
0: What do you mean by primary energy production?
1: (laughs) That is a very good question. So I guess what we're ultimately getting at here is the amount of energy that are being spent on these kind of infrastructure projects to produce energy. So, you know, I guess in the old days, that would have been things like coal power plants, but now we're probably talking a lot more about renewables. And actually, if we're really serious about replacing our fossil fuels with renewables, that requires a lot of renewable projects to be developed, a lot of renewables to be built.
0: So to lower bills, we need to be building more renewables.
1: Exactly. And do you know what? We are just not. Before 2015, the investment in this kind of energy infrastructure was on a trend on the way up, but it's kind of leveled off since then. So basically, our governments are just not investing as much as they need to be. So countries around the world are under-investing in energy supply. Yeah, What this actually means is that we're probably not just facing a blip in terms of this energy crisis, but it is going to go on longer term because of course it will take time to be able to build up the supply. Uh,
0: again, if we're, if we're electrifying everything from your car to your, your cooker, then that's gonna be increased demand. And if we don't have supply there at the right times, then that's gonna create pinch points uh, that the market price is gonna reflect. So yeah, absolutely, this this carries right forward. And before we bring the guests in, We've got time for a weird one,
1: definitely. And this certainly links to what we've been talking about, right? So we're all in energy crisis. We're all freezing in our in our homes. Karis, our producer, is sat with a a woolly hat on, not a jacket on today, but you know,
0: she's she's in Spain for goodness sake.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs>
0: we're north of the wall, all the way up here. <laughs> Yeah. So this was something, I say it's a weird one. I chuckled when I read it and then I kind of got sad and then I got angry. Those were the three phases of reaction to this. But I wrote an article on the conversation called energy discounts are a sticking plaster, basically saying that Rishi Sunak's plan to reduce bills by a sort of 200 pound repayable discount and other bits and bobs around that were a sticking plaster. They're not dealing with energy efficiency. They're not dealing with the root cause of the problem. And what I wasn't expecting was the flood of comments to come in on this piece. I think there were about sort of 50 or 60 comments on this, and some really wide-ranging. But one of them, and I won't name the individual, but one of them kind of triggered a series of other responses. And basically said that, and I'll quote, A month ago, we bought top-to-toe ski suits, which we wear with woolly hats and warm boots for about the same cost as our winter fuel payment, £100 each. And they they go on to explain that they kind of live in these onesies, these like insulated onesies with thick boots on and uh, and all the rest. And the response, this has been a response to trying to cut their central heating hours from 17 hours a day down to just two in response to cutting bills. And the number of comments that kind of came in on the back of this was people saying, yeah, we're doing this too. We don't really have much scope for insulation depending on the housing stock they're in we're so reliant on gas, electricity or oil, we're doing other stuff. So the two key reactions were wear more stuff and burn wood or coal.
1: Having lived in New Zealand for five years where the homes are pretty poor quality and huge swathes of the population on the South Island are living in what would classify as fuel poverty if they actually heated their homes up to just World Health Organization standards. But it was not uncommon. And I'm I'm pretty sure I remember seeing articles of, and adverts for effectively sleeping bags that had arms and legs. So same, same sort of concept. And in fact, I remember one of my colleagues when I was working there was, was looking at how some of this played out in organizations. And she was interviewing factory workers and these factory workers, when they got their kind of welcome induction packages, it included like woolen underwear to keep them warm. That's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely shocking. But that's
0: that's where we're at. And I say I chuckled initially, the couple here are in their mid-70s, so older than my folks, but I did chuckle because I did imagine my mum and dad just shuffling around the house <laughs> in that kind of old skiing gear. But anyway, oh. we are running out of time and we our guests are knocking at the uh, proverbial door. So- I think we ought to pause there, Becky, and welcome them in.
3: Absolutely. I'm Kayla NT I'm the founder and CEO of Brighton & Hove Energy Services Cooperative.
0: I'm
2: Nigel Cornwall, I currently run Hydrogen East and Net Zero East and have been an active consultant and commentator on the sector for the greater part of four decades.
0: Kayla, Nigel, welcome. This is a subject close to my heart and one I've been desperate to get you both on the pod to discuss, which is about community energy, uh, the trials and tribulations it faces and what the future might look like and crucially, what government could do to unlock the potential we have in the UK. Now, I wanted to begin, Kayla, with the organisation that you are intimately uh, familiar with. You are the founder, you are the chief executive, Brighton & Hove Energy Services Cooperative. This is a fantastic story of a community organization, which is doing some fantastic things in Brighton and Hove. So for our listeners, could you please explain a little bit about what BESCO is, what it does, and the type of value it provides the community?
3: BESCO develops projects across Sussex, and now we have a project in Kent. We started our first projects in 2015. I founded BESCO in 2012. It, it took me three years to get everything Going. And actually, it had been a, a dream of mine for about 20 years before that. So it's been a long time in the making. And it was always meant to be an energy services provider. But when I moved to Brighton to set it up, I was doing some work for the local authority. It was like helping people who were getting energy work done on their homes. I saw for the first time in my life, the impacts of fuel poverty and people who were really, really suffering with being unable to pay their fuel bills and the impact that it had on their confidence and their ability to contribute, make a contribution to society and and even productively live their own lives. And so my original idea of developing And removing the barriers to the uptake of renewable energy transformed into the idea of how can we make contribution to reducing fuel poverty through the uptake of renewable energy and energy efficiency, which seemed to make enormous sense to me, since once you put the measures in, people are using less energy. And if you have renewable energy, then they're generating it for free from natural resources like the wind and the sun. And so in Brighton & Hove, we do a lot of fuel poverty work. We're the main organization that rolls out fuel poverty programs for the council because they've recognized that we can do it cheaper than they can do it themselves. And we give a better service because we go and do home visits and we give our people a tremendous amount of attention. And then we develop projects across Sussex and Kent. And we've now done 57 projects. And those are all renewable energy and energy efficiency projects. And we're now moving into decarbonization of heat in rural communities. And we have worked on one community in the past, and we're working on two now. And we're really starting to see what a difference we can make with innovative finance and in our knowledge of energy efficiency and. Heat pump technology.
1: Well, it's clear how passionate you are about this. Was it a labour of love? Did it? Did you have to put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get it set up? And you know, did you find that you were were well placed because of your background, or were there kind of key challenges that you encountered as you were as you were going on this journey of of getting what seems to be a very exciting and innovative organisation established? In
3: 1998, I won an award for financing renewable energy projects. I was working for a Dutch energy supplier called Nuon. And it was at that time that I became really obsessed with financing renewable energy because the main problem is that the returns are over a longer period of time and people want short-term paybacks. So it seemed elementary to me that if you match the finance to the payback that you could get from the technology, that you had a winner. And that was the fundamental principle behind BESCO. So that was in 1998. So it took me basically 14 years to get that going. I tried to do a similar thing in London. Didn't work. I didn't have the community cohesion that I needed. And it wasn't until I moved to Brighton that I had enough of a community to really start the idea. And for the first three years, I didn't get paid. It was a lot of blood, sweat and tears, and a lot of dedication, but it was something that I wanted to do. It's like a a lifetime legacy. It's something that I can leave behind.
0: And in that period, obviously 10 years, uh, besco has been in existence. Um, and that, in that decade, I just wanted you to reflect on what have been the major successes, but also as any entrepreneur, things don't go right, whether they're somebody else's fault or or a lesson that you've learned. But I just wanted to reflect on the successes and failures over that 10 year period. What are you most proud of and what are the things that kind of got away and you wish had been done differently?
3: Well, I set up Besco as a consumer cooperative because our customers are our top priority. And it's also a social enterprise, which means that we're most concerned about carbon emission reductions, at least concerned about making a, a profit. So our customers come back to us time and time again, and I think that's a tribute to our business. This one customer was one of our first customers, and we installed heat pump and underfloor heating and 27 kilowatts of solar at their school in uh, Framfield. They were emitting about 120 tons of carbon emissions a year when we started, and they were on oil heating. Now, we just finished a project last year where we installed a ground source heat pump. We have removed their oil boiler, and they're emitting about 20 tons of carbon emissions a year. So we've been able to reduce it by 100 tons a year, their carbon emissions. And they're continuing to work with us. We're working on heating controls for them now. So it's a long-term relationship, and I think that this is really where the quality and the customer service comes in because for renewable energy and energy efficiency, you really do have to be there for the customer. I hear so many stories about failing solar arrays and problems that happen, and the customer knows they could just call us and we'll fix it for them. And I, That's really invaluable in our our industry. The first failure, it's not a failure, it just is disappointing.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I'm at a school of entrepreneurship, the first lesson that there, there's no such thing as failure, it's just lessons, right? Just, let's get that get that out of the way, right? We
3: did a heat network for uh, four buildings, and it was a biomass boiler that we put in. It was my first project. It was the first customer that wanted to work with us. And I was just so keen to have a customer because I knew once I got my first customer that we would get more people on board because we had a track record. So we put in this biomass boiler and this heat network. It was quite a large investment for us at the time. And it's just been a catalog of problem solving since then. Biomass is fairly difficult to balance because of the problems with heat load, because of the problems with the fuel and the efficiency of burning the fuel and so many elements that I made certain estimates on in the financial model, and we're losing money on that project. Hopefully, we're going to win it back because it's a relatively long contract. But that's been a struggle for me. And also because the customer has, you know, gone through quite a lot. And although they're still happy and they're working with us and they see the dedication, you want to really do the best you can for your
1: customers. So when you were telling us about your successes and you said you'd cut... 100 tons of CO2. I thought gosh that sounds like a lot but what is that? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get my head around it. Yeah. And Google has very nicely informed me that that's equivalent to 260 economy flights from Amsterdam to Rome. And there's lots of other comparisons but that's huge. I mean that is unbelievable. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's a school trip.
3: <laughs> and to be fair we're doing the same uh, the biomass does the same. The the carbon emission reductions are about 100 tons. They're not burning oil to heat those four buildings and they're they're saving a lot of money. So in a way, it's it's a good good for them all around. We're losing money. It's it I, I suppose it's growing pains for us. But the important thing is we're meeting our goal of the carbon emission reductions.
0: And also schools are a fantastic focus for education in terms of these types of projects. So I'm guessing, Kayla, you've had this ability to see these projects taking place in schools and there's the kids being able to learn more about what these projects entail, how they're delivered and what they do.
3: Yeah, I go around talking to kids at schools quite a bit. I was just out of school today and the kids are just so behind all of this and they get very excited about the idea of an energy co-op that is working to improve society and cut carbon emissions. So it's it's a dual-pronged goal. We want to improve people's lives and do for something for the environment at the same time.
1: It sounds like absolutely brilliant what what you're doing and hitting a lot of the goals that are also on the government's agenda, right? Like we have these very clear net-zero targets, and it sounds like the work that that you and that Pesco are doing is really helping to deliver on that. So, are you getting support from government to do any of this? Has it helped you out, or has it been a bit insufficient?
3: Well. Since about 2014, the government has consistently taken away benefits to businesses like ours who are working very hard to make a change in the energy industry. The first was the cut in the feed-in tariff, the abandonment of the Green Deal, which ended up costing, I think, something like 250 million pounds, and maybe Nigel knows this better than I do. I think the whole Green Deal program, which mostly pays the solicitors who, who set it up on behalf of the government, but the fact that the Green Deal program failed meant that we lost a lot of our suppliers as well because suppliers were required to pay money to join the procurement lists of many local authorities. So they lost money, And the industry was really decimated. So whereas in 2014, for example, we might have had 10 insulation installers here in the area of Brighton and Hove. Now we have none, absolutely none. There's nobody to do the work. So we have so many customers because we do energy surveys and people really want to do the work, but we don't have the people to do the work.
0: So there's the consumer demand for the surveys, just nobody to deliver it. Yeah.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we we saw that with the failure of the green voucher scheme because we had so many people, the phone was ringing off the hook of people who wanted energy surveys, energy plans, work done. It was incredible what the amount of demand that was generated by the green voucher scheme. And that was another complete failure where 25% of the government's budget was spent on administration of that
0: yeah, and consultancy fees. And I, I can see Nigel has been sitting there quietly, extremely well behaved and nodding ferociously to much of this. So so Nigel, obviously, you, you, your experience kind of covers across the whole sector. And as you say, for, for many years, you've worked in this space, just sort of reflecting on what Kayla said, some of the failures, just wanted to get a sense from you about uh, what kind of support has been in place from government for community energy, how that's evolved, and, and is it fit for purpose at the moment?
2: Well, I think the simple answer is absolutely not. I think just listening to to Kayla, who's an absolutely splendid job over a very, very long time and uh, extraordinarily well regarded in the sector as a consequence. If you flip back to 2014, I think many of us thought we were due to turn a corner. We had a community energy strategy. There seemed to be real interest to learn from failures like the green deal but somewhere in the telling of the tale something has gone very badly wrong and there are a range of reasons why government seems to have changed its mind on quite important issues it's obviously withdrawn the feed-in tariff which is was very very important we'll probably pick that up again later in terms of of how do you kick-start activity But it's taken away so many incentives around local production and consumption of energy that the gap between what the policy says and how it is delivered is huge. And it is widening even today, despite the net zero strategy. So I think this is very timely, this debate. Something has to be done. It's very difficult to get consensus on what that might be. I guess it's a very congested space with suppliers, regional stakeholders, increasingly local authorities. And it is very, very difficult to pick your way through this.
1: And Nigel, I'm wondering, you know, picking up on one of the things that uh, Kayla, you brought up around the demand for this. Obviously, there is a, a financial element in here around the incentives. And, and you mentioned the, the feed-in tariff and of course the renewable heat incentive and lots of other things that might have, and the green homes grant, you know, all of these things that sort of appeared for various periods of time and, and are no longer or a changing shape. But I mean, another part of it seems to be this, this lack of installers. And I'm just wondering if if it's also partly due to the uncertainty around the policy that it's not just about the finance, but there's an, an element of building the supply chains. Do you think that that's to do with the longevity of these policies?
3: Most definitely. Because in order to build the supply chain, you have to demonstrate demand. And if there's no incentive to create demand, then people won't go into that industry because you don't have a consistent revenue flow. The other thing I wanted to say is that the RHI has been extremely helpful in decarbonizing heat, and now that's going to end the end of March. So we're constantly trading in an environment where the playing field is changing all the time. It's very, very difficult to be flexible enough to operate within this changing playing field.
0: So it's changing and some of it has changed because there was a conclusion was drawn fairly quickly that some of these policies didn't work. Whereas some policies were halted because they were too successful and I've maybe put the feed and tariff as an example there. Nigel, reflecting on this, is a bad policy worse than no policy? And I'm thinking of the green Home grants as an example here. at the moment we've we're kind of in a position where there aren't really any policies that are in from u k government maybe squarely here, or there are very few that are directly focused on community energy. There are other policies that communities can can leverage, but we're kind of in a position where there's an absence of, uh, of uh, focus policy. Is, is this preferable over, over rushed policy like the Green Home Grants?
2: No, we can't be accused of rushing to anything. We've spent the greater part of the period since 2008, in my opinion, searching for perfect answers within a very fragmented government process and most of the interventions have not been given time to work through i think you're absolutely right the feed-in tariff did what it said on the tin we should have been looking at extending that into other areas around heat and transport uh, rather than take it away and we didn't just take away the incentive we completely changed the legal framework within which people like Kayla's organization can actually get routes to market. The one good thing about the feed in tariff was that you knew you could get a firm export rate for the life of a project. And that's why it was so successful. Arguably too successful because we ended up with schemes in some, certainly not I, I don't know enough about Sussex, but you you end up with schemes in the wrong places. So people will went on a bit of a feeding frenzy but nevertheless it pulled through renewable generation and has achieved significant systemic carbon abatement which is what we're i thought we were all trying to achieve we need policies we've tried various things particularly on the heat side i'm permanently baffled by where we are in the policy formation process but if you if you Just rewind to the net zero strategy that appeared in October. There was absolutely nothing around community energy, what the role of local authorities should be. Clearly they need to work together, but there are no mechanisms for achieving that. I think the two policies that were clearly signpost, one is the Rural Communities Energy Fund, which, if you're lucky, you might get 40,000 quid to test a project if you are in a qualifying area, and that has to be defined as fewer than 10,000 people. So uh, its coverage is very, very limited. It's administered by the energy hubs who have still got a lot to learn, in my opinion. And then there was something which I still don't understand about having access to money's in the voluntary redress fund. This feels as if somebody's trying very hard to show that they're doing something without really understanding what the outcome is. So it's tactical interventions that don't work together, that confuse people. And over this period, going back to 2008, the supporting infrastructure and supply chains that are needed at the regional level have simply not developed And that is a fundamental problem, given the government's aspirations around net zero.
1: I'm glad you brought up the net zero strategy, because I remember reading through it at the tail end of last year and being excited at first when I saw the mention of kind of this local aspirations and, you know, not just around the local authorities, but community groups as well. But then absolutely nothing in there seemingly to support the delivery of that so no devolved responsibilities no no funding schemes it was very sort of stark in an area where i i'd hope to see more and i guess if we're thinking about this and thinking well you know we've got what we're two years into our decade of action where we've really got to make significant headway if we're going to deliver net zero and I guess the maybe some people would <laughs> would say that the if probably isn't there, but I like to be hopeful and still hope that we might be able to do it. But if we are, and if we need that strong leadership through some of these policies, Nigel, what what would you like to see? What policies do you think are absolutely critical for us to be able to get moving in this space and moving fast?
2: My personal view is that something is needed through using local authorities as enablers. You know, they have a place-shaping role, their, for want of a better term, brand is usually quite good, and they themselves start to need to deliver changes that will reduce their own carbon footprints. So they're doing it to differing degrees. We're working with a couple of local authorities up here who are looking at net zero by 2030. Everybody needs an aspiration, but they also need the toolkit to deliver it. There is a further point, which I've occasionally mentioned, which is there tends to be an official view that net zero is something that's done to people and communities and building the engagement And working out what works in one place but not another is very, very important. And there's a very long way to go down that road. So at the moment, the position that we're finding ourselves in is that, you know, government has increased its expenditure on net zero quite dramatically 1920 to 2021. I think it's 70 million to over a billion these are streams of funding that are put out at short notice and which many local authorities particularly more remote rural communities struggle to participate in and the money is being routed into a number of trophy schemes in repeat places which is good for those who can qualify for it but we, we we need a much broader push across all types of local authorities and communities.
0: So, Kayla, obviously you work very closely with the local authority. You've said that you're one of their preferred delivery partners for issues around energy efficiency and fuel poverty. So there's, I think there's two points that Nigel raises That Well, two, two, I'm going to pull two out. One is uh, how communities can benefit by policies that support local authority delivery or local delivery. And the second there was policies that require some degree of place-based citizen engagement to understand what it is that those communities want and maybe want to engage with them themselves. So reflecting on Besco and Brighton and Hove.
3: Well, Nigel was absolutely spot on in that these opportunities for local authorities to apply for various funds is very short notice and a very quick turnaround. Our local authority can't make those deadlines. They, the, their administrative processes are by their nature too long to be able to accommodate the short deadlines. So we haven't been able to engage with our local authority on getting any of these programs going because it's the policy of the local authority that contracts over a certain amount need to go out for procurement. We would have to apply, we would have to go through a rigorous procurement process in order to be able to win any contracts. Now we've tried with a local authority to get on their procurement register, one outside of Brighton and Hove, and because we're relatively small, we weren't able to even we didn't win the the tender process. So what I what I find very interesting is that, and I'm not necessarily picking on the Swaffham Prior project, which is very famous now because they've they're taking on revolutionary action to decarbonize heat in their community which is really laudable the the issue is is that the latest result was that it's going to be 13 million pounds to perhaps provide heating to they're looking at 40 40 homes right now so that's 325,000 pounds per home for a heating provision now I don't know if that's because it was run by a local authority. A lot of money was thrown into that uh, with expensive consultancy, but we're working on projects. I've got a project for a village of 330 people. We're working with the parish council there, and we think we could get heat networks in there for everyone in the village. Some can't be on a heat network because it just doesn't make a lot of sense but we're talking about combining energy efficiency with either ground source or air source heat pumps for a total cost of 11 million pounds for 330 homes. So there has to be some kind of requirement that the local authorities work with the community energy groups to bring in a comprehensive approach and bring in best practice.
1: It sounds like a no brainer to me, right? But like, how can we make government sit up and listen? Like, How do we sell this to government if it's so important? Keller, have you had any experience of trying to do that or any successes for making people sit up and realize the, the benefits of this?
3: So we campaign all the time about this. We've written our own 10-point plan because we're not in agreement with the government and its approach to creating clean, affordable energy, which is really what we should be aspiring to as a nation. We also have Community Energy England, which is the voice for community energy groups across the country, of which there are over 300. I'm not sure off the top of my head anymore how many there are, but most communities have a group of interested people who who really want to make a difference for the people living there, and we're working on two rural community energy funds with communities who are with people who are completely engaged and very hardworking in trying to make something work. And it's this combination of local energy working with experts that could really transform communities. But the point is is that government funding needs to be made available and it needs to be government can't look at these projects like Nigel was saying, these pet projects that are not going to deliver value for money. We have to be very targeted in what we do, and we have to have a concrete and well executable strategy for rolling it out. And I'm not saying community energy is the answer. I think that it's part of the answer. The answer is larger.
0: That's really important. And I'm going to come directly to Nigel on this. So Nigel, you've worked very closely, as I understand it, advising government industry on a whole range of matters relating to local and community energy. What is your sales pitch? Or if you were to develop one, what would it be? How are you positioning community energy and the contribution it can make to, I guess, three things? One is the energy crisis. Second is net zero. And the third is a just transition, which are in one form or another on the table on and the in-tray of of energy ministers across the uk at the moment so what does community energy do and how do we how do we sell the idea
2: i I think it needs to be done in two very different ways and you'll be familiar with all the discussions going on around a local electricity bill at the moment which i think actually is a little bit of a distraction
0: i just wonder whether you you could unpack that a bit now just for listeners about what what the bill is and why it's important please
2: I'm not sure what it is now. It was a private member's bill, but it's a different sort of piece of legislation. It was rolled over from the last Parliament. in the previously, Peter Aldous was one of the backers. Now we're at Hobhouses and uh, one or two other new MPs. but basically it's seeking to create a right to a local electricity supply, but doesn't actually say how you can do it. And this really takes you right back into the guts of one of the real problems that overhangs all decentralized activity in this market, which is a very centralized electricity supply market where everybody has to be a licensed supplier. The costs of being a supplier are, from a compliance perspective are high, and they're even higher now because of all the costs of the, the good policies that are being pushed out to consumers, FITs, Rocks, and the uh, energy company obligation. So a lot of the things that Kale is involved with on the ground, the historic legacy costs of policy flow through to suppliers. And the government is very concerned, as is our regulator, Ofgem, that in some way this will lead to free-riding on the system, people avoiding costs. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think there are some levers that could be pulled. But the fundamental issue is we have a national supply market with very large scale players who aren't particularly interested in what happens at the local level. I think there are some exceptions to that. People like Octopus who are doing some good stuff around energy local and schemes like that. But with the recent turbulence in the supply market, a lot of the other people who are looking at what I would call unconventional supply offers, innovative supply offers, have failed. So that is a particular issue for the government, not just doing something, but doing something today. The positive point I would make is that if people are seeing average bills of £2,000 a family per household. That really does make people focus on the things that they can control. Fuel poverty you know, is going to be the huge issue next winter. We're going to see another rise in the price cap in October. Tariffs, typical tariffs over £2,100 maybe. I think to answer your original question there needs to be a means of persuading politicians that not only is this the right direction to help to allow people to help themselves it is not going to create you know a lump of costs that are just going to be smeared over everybody else
0: i just wonder whether instead of us talking about co- what we need to do to convince government do we think the energy crisis might just be convincing citizens to act like communities again in terms of organizing themselves to, as you say, Nigel, to control what they can control and do something about this mess, to set up their own community energy organizations that can implement efficiency measures to drive down uh, costs, decentralized generation, whatever it might be. Might this energy crisis spur some communities into action?
3: I'm really looking forward to that opportunity. My dream is that communities generate their own energy locally and can control their own pricing. Nigel's absolutely spot on that Octopus is a a leader in this area and we do work with them fairly closely. I think that community energy groups can be a route to market for the energy suppliers and there is a big opportunity for community energy groups to do the work on the ground to help generate not only customers but local generation, control more of our own costs. That's where the difference really comes in.
2: I think the rising cost of energy will make people focus. I think that's going to be more important in the short run than aspirations about net zero. But I think if government was being smart, it would link the two because it is all about empowering communities to adopt solutions that work for them. And it will differ from one place to another.
1: It's an interesting question that you pose, Matt, and it sort of is making me think as well. I'd love to see the energy crisis prompt the establishment of more community groups that's doing similar work to what Besco is doing, but reflecting back to where this story started and the 12 years, was it, that it took to get stuff set up, the blood, sweat and tears, the knowledge that you need to have of legal structures the finance sector that's changing constantly, what worries me is that we'll end up with a very uneven landscape here. So I think there's some some real challenges, but I guess this really kind of brings me into where I'd like to end our discussion, which is on the much more practical side. So we are Local Zero. We are all about local action to drive net zero, whether that's action in our communities, action as you know, citizens or action as consumers. We have all sorts of different roles we can play in this. So maybe you can share some thoughts about what we can actually take away from this and how we might be able to do things differently as individuals or as communities to support the growth of community energy organizations like BESCO and others and start to tackle some of these, these serious issues.
2: Yeah, I guess I should introduce a point. I should have started with which is i'm operating in a community energy desert in east anglia it's one of the reasons why i'm trying to lift the profile of the issues we have none of these 330 groups that kayla referred to so there's a very long way to go i think there is an uplift of awareness of the need to take control locally there's a long way to go One thing that we're doing, and many of you will be very familiar with this concept of local area energy planning, which has gained some momentum, that may or may not be a way to build understanding and understand what local needs are. We are, through Net Zero East, trying to do something very different. I think Matt's familiar with a little bit of this, which is We're taking eight representative, whatever you mean by representative, market towns in this part of the world looking at what is there, what the challenges are, what the fuel poverty levels are, what the energy assets are, and trying to come up with strategies or recommendations that suggest how they might move forward. I think something facilitated like that is very necessary, even in areas like the south, which has got a lot more richness around the debate on community energy than we have here in East Anglia. But somewhere in this, we have to not only show people what good looks like, allow them to embrace that, and then take ownership at the local level across the energy spectrum.
0: And Kayla, you have the final word. What 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 do we do? What's the answer?
3: Part of my dream is that we become highly experienced in all these areas and then I could go out to talk to other groups and help them. That's part of what I would like to start doing as BESCO becomes more and more independent and can just do its own thing. I was a peer mentor. The Center for Sustainable Energy ran a peer mentoring program for other community energy groups. A lot of times these people are volunteers and they don't have all of the time that one would like to be able to devote to to this solving this kind of problem i think that if the local authorities would work more closely with the people in their communities local authorities have the advantage because they have access to very low interest funding if not zero interest funding they are the target of a lot of central government funding now i think that if there are people in the local community who can help, like Nigel says, identify the areas where local generation is possible. And people have ideas. I go to communities all the time and talk to them and see what the possibilities are. I think there are two fundamental problems. One, people feel a little bit helpless. They don't know what to do and they don't understand the technology and they're afraid of it. And I don't think that they really recognize that Energy prices are now going to continue to rise. I think people who are having oil heating, and I know this because we're engaging with these people, think that it's going to be okay. They're going to continue to pay 60p a liter and it's all going to be fine. But that's just not the case. And also the other thing is that we have a lot of people who are used to having energy delivered to them in a certain way and don't want to change. They don't want to invest in the change that we need we need people raising awareness of the change that is needed and we need leadership to drive that change
0: couldn't have said it better myself kayla nigel thank you very much for your time and your wisdom uh, been an absolute pleasure having you along and hopefully one day soon we'll we'll get you back on but i'm afraid that's all we have time for So to the listeners, if you want to engage any more in in the debate here, please do find us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Engage in the debate there. Let us know your thoughts and feelings on what we've discussed. But until then, we look forward to uh, hearing more from you by email or on Twitter. And thank you once again to our guests. Until then, goodbye.
3: Bye. Thank you, Matt. Bye. Goodbye. Produced by the Spoken Media.